Chapter forty eight of A Hazard of New Fortunes. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Dryfoos sat at breakfast that morning with Mrs. Mandel as usual to pour out his coffee. Conrad had gone downtown. The two girls lay abed much later than their father breakfasted, and their mother had gradually grown too feeble to come down till lunch. Suddenly Christine appeared at the door. Her face was white to the edges of her lips, and her eyes were blazing. "'Look here, father. Have you been saying anything to Mr. Beaton?' The old man looked up at her across his coffee-cup through his frowning brows. "'No.' Mrs. Mandel dropped her eyes, and the spoon shook in her hand. "'Then what's the reason he don't come here any more?' demanded the girl. And her glance darted from her father to Mrs. Mandel. "'Oh, it's you, is it? I'd like to know who told you to meddle in other people's business.' "'I did,' said Dryfoos savagely. I told her to ask him what he wanted here, and he said he didn't want anything, and he stopped coming. That's all. I did it myself. "'Oh, you did, did you?' said the girl, scarcely less insolently than she had spoken to Mrs. Mandel. "'I should like to know what you did it for. I'd like to know what made you think I wasn't able to take care of myself. I just knew somebody had been meddling, but I didn't suppose it was you.' I can manage my own affairs in my own way, if you please, and I'll thank you after this to leave me to myself in what don't concern you. Don't concern me, you impudent jade, her father began. Christine advanced from the doorway toward the table. She had her hands closed upon what seemed trinkets, some of which glittered and dangled from them. She said, Will you go to him and tell him that this meddlesome minx here had no business to say anything about me to him, and you take it all back? No, shouted the old man, and if you— That's all I want of you, the girl shouted in her turn. Here are your presents. With both hands she flung the jewels pins and rings and earrings and bracelets among the breakfast dishes from which some of them sprang to the floor. She stood a moment to pull the intaglio ring from the finger where Beaton put it a year ago, and dashed that at her father's plate. Then she whirled out of the room, and they heard her running upstairs. The old man made a start toward her, but he fell back in his chair before she was gone, and with a fierce grinding movement of his jaws controlled himself. "'Take, take those things up,' he gasped to Mrs. Mandel. He seemed unable to rise again from his chair. But when she asked him if he were unwell, he said no, with an air of offence, and got quickly to his feet. He mechanically picked up the intaglio ring from the table while he stood there, and put it on his little finger. His hand was not much bigger than Christine's. "'How do you suppose she found out?' he asked, after a moment. "'She seems to have merely suspected it,' said Mrs. Mandel, in a tremor, and with the fright in her eyes which Christine's violence had brought there. Well, it don't make any difference. She had to know, somehow, and now she knows. He started toward the door of the library, as if to go into the hall, where his hat and coat hung. Mr. Dryfoos, palpitated Mrs. Mandel, I can't remain here after the language your daughter has used to me. I can't let you leave me. I, I'm afraid of her. Lock yourself up, then, said the old man rudely. He added from the hall before he went out. I reckon she'll quiet down now." He took the elevated road. 
The strike seemed a very far-off thing, though the paper he bought to look up the stock market was full of noisy typography about yesterday's troubles on the surface lines. Among the millions in Wall Street there was some joking and some swearing, but not much thinking, about the six thousand men who had taken such chances in their attempt to better their condition. Dryfoos heard nothing of the strike in the lobby of the stock exchange, where he spent two or three hours watching a favorite stock of his go up and go down under the betting. By the time the exchange closed it had risen eight points, and on this and some other investments he was five thousand dollars richer than he had been in the morning. But he had expected to be richer still, and he was by no means satisfied with his luck. All through the excitement of his winning and losing had played the dull, murderous rage he felt toward the child who had defied him, and when the game was over and he started home his rage mounted into a sort of frenzy. He would teach her, he would break her. He walked a long way without thinking, and then waited for a car. None came, and he hailed a passing coupé. "'What has got all the cars?' he demanded of the driver who jumped down from his box to open the door for him and get his direction. "'Been away?' asked the driver. "'Hasn't been any car along for a week. Strike!' "'Oh, yes,' said Dryfoos. He felt suddenly giddy, and he remained staring at the driver after he had taken his seat. The man asked, "'Where to?' Dryfoos could not think of his street or number, and he said with uncontrollable fury, I told you once, go up West 11th and drive along slow on the south side. I'll show you the place. He could not remember the number of every other week office, where he suddenly decided to stop before he went home. He wished to see Fulkerson and ask him something about Beaton, whether he had been about lately, and whether he had dropped any hint of what had happened concerning Christine. Dryfoos believed that Fulkerson was in the fellow's confidence. There was nobody but Conrad in the counting-room, whither Dryfoos returned, after glancing into Fulkerson's empty office. "'Where's Fulkerson?' he asked, sitting down with his hat on. "'He went out a few moments ago,' said Conrad, glancing at the clock. "'I'm afraid he isn't coming back again today, if you wanted to see him.' Dryfoos twisted his head sidewise and upward to indicate March's room. "'That other fellow out, too?' "'He went just before Mr. Fulkerson,' answered Conrad. "'Do you generally knock off here in the middle of the afternoon?' asked the old man. "'No,' said Conrad, as patiently as if his father had not been there a score of times, and found the whole staff of every other week at work between four and five. Mr. March, you know, always takes a good deal of his work home with him, and I suppose Mr. Fulkerson went out so early because there isn't much doing to-day.' Perhaps it's the strike that makes it dull. The strike, yes. It's a pretty piece of business to have everything thrown out because a parcel of lazy hounds wants a chance to lay off and get drunk. Dryfoo seemed to think Conrad would make some answer to this, but the young man's mild face merely saddened, and he said nothing. I've got a coupé out there now that I had to take because I couldn't get a car. If I had my way, I'd have a lot of those vagabonds hung. They're waiting to get the city into a snarl and then rob the houses. Pack of dirty, worthless whelps. They ought to call out the militia and fire into them. Clubbing is too good for them. Conrad was still silent, and his father sneered. But I reckon you don't think so. 
"'I think the strike is useless,' said Conrad. "'Oh, you do, do you? Coming to your senses a little? Getting tired walking so much? I should like to know what your gentlemen over there on the east side think about the strike, anyway.' The young fellow dropped his eyes. "'I am not authorized to speak for them.' "'Oh, indeed! And perhaps you're not authorized to speak for yourself?' "'Father, you know we don't agree about these things. I'd rather not talk, but I'm a-going to make you talk this time,' cried Dryfoos, striking the arm of the chair he sat in with the side of his fist. A maddening thought of Christine came over him. "'As long as you eat my bread, you have got to do as I say. I won't have my children telling me what I shall do and shan't do, or take on airs of being holier than me. Now you just speak up. Do you think those loafers are right, or don't you? Come.' Conrad apparently judged it best to speak. "'I think they were very foolish to strike, at this time, when the elevated roads can do the work.' "'Oh, at this time, eh? And I suppose they think that over there on the east side that it had been wise to strike before we got the elevated?' Conrad again refused to answer, and his father roared, "'What do you think?' "'I think a strike is always bad business. It's war.' but sometimes there don't seem any other way for the working men to get justice. They say that sometimes strikes do raise the wages, after a while. Those lazy devils were paid enough already, shrieked the old man. They got two dollars a day. How much do you think they ought to have got? Twenty? Conrad hesitated, with a beseeching look at his father. But he decided to answer. The men say that with partial work and fines and other things, they get sometimes a dollar and sometimes ninety cents a day. They lie, and you know they lie, said his father, rising and coming toward him. And what do you think the upshot of it all will be after they've ruined business for another week and made people hire hacks and stolen the money of honest men? How is it going to end? They will have to give in. Oh, give in, eh? And what will you say then, I should like to know? How will you feel about it then? Speak. I shall feel as I do now. I know you don't think that way, and I don't blame you, or anybody. But if I have got to say how I shall feel, why, I shall feel sorry they didn't succeed, for I believe they have a righteous cause, though they go the wrong way to help themselves. His father came close to him, his eyes blazing, his teeth set. Do you dare so say that to me? Yes, I can't help it. I pity them. My whole heart is with those poor men. You impudent puppy! shouted the old man. He lifted his hand and struck his son in the face. Conrad caught his hand with his own left, and, while the blood began to trickle from a wound that Christine's intaglio ring had made in his temple, he looked at him with a kind of grieving wonder, and said, Father! The old man wrenched his fist away and ran out of the house. He remembered his address now, and he gave it as he plunged into the coupé. He trembled with his evil passion, and glared out of the windows at the passes as he drove home. He only saw Conrad's mild, grieving, wondering eyes, and the blood slowly trickling from the wound in his temple. Conrad went to the neat-set bowl in Fulkerson's comfortable room and washed the blood away and kept bathing the wound with the cold water till it stopped bleeding. The cut was not deep, and he thought he would not put anything on it. After a while he locked up the office, 
and started out he hardly knew where but he walked in the direction he had taken till he found himself in union square on the pavement in front of brentano's it seemed to him that he heard some one calling gently to him mr dryfoos End of chapter 48